Welcome back to The Boy from Splendora, Texas by Wallace Gibbs. Can you believe that it's been almost three months since I've posted anything? I finally got through the project at work that I had on my mind and now I'm back. So welcome to The Boy from Splendora, Texas by Wallace Gibbs. The Mailbox 1976 Wallace, I faintly heard Mama yell from the kitchen table where she and Daddy were drinking coffee and reading the Houston Chronicle. I saw that it was morning as evidenced by the light in the room that I saw through the slits in my cracked open eyelids. Everything went dark again as I fell back to sleep. Wallace, Mama said more firmly as she stood in the doorway to mine and Virgil's bedroom. Yes, ma'am, I groggily said. Get up and go let the chickens out, Mama said. Yes, ma'am, I said as I slid my feet from under the covers and onto the cool, tiled floor. With the exception of Mama and Daddy's room and Gina's room, which had carpet, the floor of the entire house was covered in a whitish, grayish tile like you would find in a school or a hospital. About once a month, Mama would chase everyone out of the house and spend most of the day stripping the wax off the floor and then reapply a fresh coat of wax with her Electrolux machine, making the floors shine brightly. It was July 10th of 1976. Last Saturday, the entire family had gone to Round Top, Texas for the Shill Still annual company picnic that was held every 4th of July. This year was particularly special because it was the bicentennial celebration of Independence Day for the United States. My favorite parts of the celebration included seeing the parade in town, that showcased all sorts of antique vehicles, including many Ford Model Ts. I also enjoyed the unlimited supply of cookies that was available throughout the day with either blue, white, or red frosting on top. Lastly, I loved going into the fields near the pavilions to scout out the gigantic grasshoppers, which were at least three times the size of the grasshoppers that we had in Splendora. Wallace, Mama agitatedly called, get up and go do your chores. I quickly put on my blue jeans and one of my striped t-shirts along with my tennis shoes. As I rounded the corner of the hallway that led to the living room, Mama spotted me and said, when you're out there, why don't you fill up the swimming pool? Earlier in the year, Daddy had bought a stainless steel stock tank that was about six feet across and about three feet deep. We used the stock tank as our own personal swimming pool in the summer. About once every two or three weeks, we would remove the metal plug on the side of the pool and let the water drain out. We would then take an old broom and some laundry soap to scrub down and clean the inside of the tank. Then we would refill it for another two weeks of fun. We weren't sure if we'd be swimming any time in the near future, so we would turn the tank upside down and lay it across the top of the chain-link fence that separated the backyard from the pasture. This would prevent any water from getting into it, creating a mosquito breeding ground. 
I exited out the utility room and out the back garage door and headed to the pasture. As I opened the pasture gate, Jojo spotted me and started to amble towards me. I went to the chicken yard and opened the chicken house door where about 20 chickens roosted every night, including my pet chicken Jekyll. Three or four chickens headed to the feeder that was suspended from the ceiling of the open part of the chicken house near the egg hutches. Five or six chickens headed to the water trough, and the rest ambled out into the yard. Instinctively, I checked the level of food in the feeder and saw that it was about half full. Then I checked the water trough and discovered that it was filthy, so I dumped out the remaining water, rinsed the trough, and then refilled it. I then exited the chicken yard and headed towards the swimming pool that was angled on top of the chain-link fence. Any time the pool was turned upside down like this, I would take the opportunity to use the open palms of my hands and beat on the metal bottom. The resulting sound was amazing, and it reminded me of a rolling thunderstorm. One time, Virgil said to me, you know that if a snapping turtle ever bites you, they won't let go until they hear thunder. I thought about that as I pounded the bottom of the stock tank, enjoying the resounding tones that I was producing. Well, I said to myself, if I ever get stuck in that predicament, I'll run out here and drain the pool and beat on the bottom of this until the turtle releases me. After five or six minutes of performing my own drum routine, I climbed under the stock tank, put my hands on the bottom of the cool metal, and started pushing outwards. The stock tank began to slowly angle higher and higher until it was perpendicular with the ground. With one final shove, I pushed the stock tank over and it began making a wobbled and it began as it wobbled around as it made contact with the ground, eventually setting on its flat bottom. I pushed against the pool to settle into the circle of dead grass marking the spot where it usually sat. I went to the water spigot near the chicken yard and retrieved the water hose. I turned on the spigot and then used the stream of water to clean off the hose so that I wouldn't contaminate the fresh water in the pool. I put about six feet of the hose into the pool and began filling it up. I turned and headed back to the house. Go wash your hands, Mama commanded as I came through the utility room. Yes, ma'am, I said as I spied a freshly made waffle sitting at my place at the table. I went to the bathroom, washed my hands, and returned to the table. Before you sit down, Mama began, I want you to set a timer for one hour. When that goes off, it will remind you to go and check the water level on the pool. I went to the olive green double oven and reached over the right burners, twisting the dial on the timer to 60 minutes. I then returned to the table where Virgil had finally joined us. Boys, Mama began, once you finish breakfast, I want you to help Charlotte get the lawn mowed. Yes, ma'am, Virgil and I replied as we both looked at each other. This was no small task. Normally, it would take the three of us over two hours to mow the ample front yard and the sizable backyard, which included the area behind the old garage, around the persimmon tree, and along the perimeter of the gardens. 
Charlotte would drive the wheel horse tractor, which was a little larger than your typical riding lawnmower. Virgil and I each had a push mower that we would use to mow the spots that were too difficult to get with the wheel horse tractor. During the summer months, Virgil and I would also mow the ditches in front of the house because they were mostly void of water. During the spring and fall, Daddy would have to help mow the ditches because Virgil and I didn't have the physical strength to aim the mower into the moist earth in the center of the ditch and then pull it out backwards. Virgil and I put our breakfast plates in the kitchen sink and headed out the utility room door. Charlotte was in the old garage checking the oil in the wheelhouse tractor using the dipstick that could be accessed on the right side of the engine. Then she opened the hood of the tractor and took off the gas tank cap. Can you grab the gas can? Charlotte said as the two of us approached. I entered the old garage through the area where the big up and over door normally sat closed. Daddy normally kept two five-gallon cans of gasoline close to the entrance. I reached down and grabbed the first one I came to, discovering that it was only half full. As I walked toward Charlotte, she grabbed the can and lifted it towards the tractor where she tilted it to fill the gas tank. The tractor took most of the gasoline in the can, so it was much, much lighter when Charlotte handed it back to me. With the gas can still in my grasp, I used the remaining gasoline to fill both mine and Virgil's push mowers. I knew from experience that I would be back for more before the lawn mowing chore was complete. Charlotte started up the wheel horse tractor and slowly backed it out of the old garage. She then headed to the backyard by the garden and began mowing there. Virgil and I each grabbed our respective lawn mowers and headed to the front ditches. I have always liked to get the hardest of the work done first so that as you got tired it evened out the workload. As we exited the fence, Virgil turned left and headed to the western corner of the property next to Mr. Bond's house. He would mow the ditch from the property line to the first driveway. He would then begin on the second section between the first driveway and the second driveway. I turned right and headed down alongside of FM 2090 until I reached Brother Maeve's driveway. Typically, Mama and Daddy had us mow the ditch in front of Brother May's house, as well as our own ditches. I began to mow the ditches on my end, and Virgil began mowing the ditches on his end. We met in the middle, on either side of the second driveway, that used to lead up to the old house. Back in 1976, the lawnmowers did not have the safety bars that stopped the engine when you let them go, like they do today. The lawnmower would run continuously until it either ran out of gas or you went to the front of it and pushed down the stop switch with your foot making contact with the spark plug which killed the engine. Virgil and I left the mowers running while we discussed what our next mowing chore would be. As we talked, we saw Charlotte enter the front lawn with the wheel horse tractor. I'll mow up close to the house if you go mow around the persimmon tree and the fig trees, Virgil said. Deal, I said as I grabbed the handle to my still running lawnmower and pushed it towards the backyard. As I passed within view of the kitchen window, Mama lifted the window. 
Leave your mower where it is and go check the water level in the pool, Mama hollered from the open window. Immediately, I took off towards the pasture, running fast as I could. I entered the pasture and approached the pool, noticing that it was about a third full. I quickly turned around and ran back to the house. As Mama spotted me returning, she raised the window again. It's only about a third of the way full, I shouted. All right, Mama said. I'll set another timer. I grabbed my mower and pushed it towards the backyard. Directly behind the old garage were two fig trees that Mama and Daddy had planted when they moved to Splendora in 1959. The trees were a nice size, and Mama would harvest figs daily during the months of July and August. As I mowed around the fig bush, I could see several ripened figs. Daddy loved figs, and he would eat them raw, but his favorite way to eat them was when Mama made fig preserves by canning them in a heavy sugar syrup. After mowing around the fig trees, I pushed my mower over by the persimmon tree. As I mowed around the tree, I stepped on several ripened persimmons that had fallen on the ground. These fruit made a terrific sound when they made contact with the lawnmower blade and then were pureed out the side, side discharge. I finished this area and headed back to the old garage where Charlotte and Virgil were putting away their lawn equipment. Y'all want to have a persimmon fight? I asked. I do, Virgil exclaimed. Not me. Charlotte said, I'm going to eat lunch and then go clean the church with Gail and Gina. You're going to miss a great time, I chided. Charlotte headed to the house while Virgil and I headed towards the persimmon tree. No one, not even Daddy, ate the persimmon, so they were there were plenty left on the tree. As Virgil and I approached the base of the small tree, I reached up and grabbed the ripest persimmon that I could find hanging from the branches. I plucked the persimmon and handed it to Virgil. I then reached up and plucked another one. Okay, I said, let's collect as many as we can, then we'll have our battle. I picked several more ripe persimmons from the tree, but also made sure to get several juicy, squishy ones from off the ground. Virgil did the same. We each took our collection and backed about ten feet from each other. Ready? I asked. Ready, Virgil replied, and the battle began. Persimmons make a gratifying sound when they hit something. Soon, Virgil and I were in the midst of a fruit battle, returning to the tree several times to rearm. We had persimmon pulp in our hair, on our shirts, and on our pants. Let's go inside, I said, after we had squeezed all of the fun out of the war. I'm hungry. Virgil and I made our way to the back garage door and entered the house through the utility room. Normally, Mama would have yelled at us and made us strip off our clothes before we came in. However, I was surprised to see Charlotte, Gail, and Gina sitting at the kitchen table with Daddy and Mama. The room was alive with conversation, and I could sense that something was wrong. Okay. Daddy said, let's go look. Daddy got up from his usual chair at the kitchen table and headed outside through the utility room. Mama, Gina, 
Gail, and Charlotte all followed him outside. Virgil and I sensed that this was something that we should not miss, so we got in line and followed the others outside. As I exited the front garage door, I immediately saw what was causing all of the commotion. The front bumper on Mama's olive green 1972 Ford Galaxy 500 had a dent in it that almost looked like the uptick of an EKG chart. The normally beautiful lines on the front of the car were now marred. Okay, Daddy began, tell me the story from the beginning. At this point, I am going to put all of us in the car with Gina, Gail, and Charlotte to tell the story from their point of view. Before I do, you need to understand this. Most of the large cars in the 1970s had a bench seat in the front and a bench seat in the back, giving the car a capacity to legally hold six people. We regularly violated this rule any time the seven of us went somewhere together. Typically, it would be Daddy and Mama in the front seat, with either me or Virgil in between them, and the other four kids would ride in the back. To move the bench seat backwards and forwards to meet the driver's preference, the driver would pull a lever to their left and use their feet to help either push or pull the seat in the desired position. The lever was attached to a catch on the driver's side as well as to a wire that ran underneath the seat and attached to a catch on the passenger side. At some time during the year, the wire broke in the middle. So in order to move the seat, the passenger would have to reach under the seat, grab the wire, and pull it. The passenger would then also have to pull the seat forward using their feet. I am not sure why Daddy didn't repair the break in the wire, but he didn't. Jaina was the shortest of the three girls and normally had to pull the seat up into the closest position in relation to the steering column. Normally, she would do this before she left the driveway, but for some reason, she didn't do this today. What do y'all want to listen to, Gina said as the three girls all got in the front seat of the car. As Gail sat down, she opened up the glove compartment and pulled out an eight-track tape titled, Watch Your Mama's Name by Tanya Tucker. How about this, Gail said as she shoved the, or showed the tape to Gina and Charlotte. That's good with me, Gina stated as she put the gear shift of the Galaxy 500 into reverse and backed out onto FM 2090 and headed west towards town. Gail slid the 8-track tape into the tape deck. She then reached over and rotated the left dial to increase the volume. The Tanya Tucker song peeled forth from the speakers in the car. Gail quickly pushed the right knob twice to change.
I love this song. Gail stated as the lyrics continued to play. Help me pull up this seat. It's too far back, Gina stated. Instinctively, Gail reached under her side of the bench seat and grabbed the piece of broken wire that controlled her side. She gave it a sharp tug. I'm ready, Gail said. Gina reached under her side of the bench seat and grabbed the piece of... Gina reached to her left and lifted the chrome lever that released the latch that held her side of the seat. Okay, pull, Gina said. A little too late. Because of the momentum of the car, the seat slid backwards and Gina's foot slid off the accelerator pedal. Pull, pull, Gina urgently shouted. All three girls frantically pulled with their feet to try and get the seat into the forward position. Gina was now slightly bent over in the seat as she held on to her latch and her line of sight left the road just for an instant. Right as they passed Uncle Gene's house, the right side of the big Ford left the road and Gina could feel the tires grab a hold of the iron ore gravel that served as the border of FM-2090. SMASH! The girls watched as three mailboxes flew up into the air and disappeared behind the car. Somehow, someway, Gina managed to get her foot on the brake pedal and bring the car to a screeching stop. Gina slid the gear shift into park and turned off the engine. The girls all sat in silence as they all looked through the front window of the car. Are you okay? Gina asked Gail and Charlotte. I am, Gail said. I am too, Charlotte said. Gina reached down, pulled the lever to the door handle and opened her car door. Gail did the same and all three girls got out and made their way to the front of the car. The bumper of the car was bent upwards and there was a piece of four by four lumber resting on it. You girls all right? The girls heard someone shout. They all turned and saw Miss Turner making her way towards them. Yes, ma'am, Gina said. We're all good. What in the tarnation were you doing? Miss Turner said in a more irritated tone. I just wasn't paying attention, Gina stated. Well, that's for sure, Miss Turner griped. Go get my mailbox. Instinctively, Gina turned and began walking down FM-2090. Charlotte and Gail followed her. Prior to the accident, Mrs. Turner's mailbox was mounted on a 4x4 piece of lumber that was set in the ground. A 2x4 was nailed onto the top of the 4x4 and ran lengthwise. There were three mailboxes mounted onto the 2x4. The first mailbox that the girls came to belonged to Miss Ott, an old widow woman that lived diagonal and across the street from Miss Turner. Gail bent down and picked up that mangled mailbox that still had part of the two before attached to it. Unbelievably, the door to the mailbox was still closed. As they continued to walk, they spotted several letters and bills strewn in the grass alongside FM 2090. 
Jane and Charlotte began picking these up as they made their way to a piece of mangled metal that at one time was Miss Turner's mailbox. Gina bent down and picked up the wreckage. The last mailbox belonged to the Hales, a family that lived on the east side of Mrs. Turner. The Hales' son, Keith, was Charlotte's age and had cancer. Charlotte stooped to pick up their mailbox, which was in the same shape that Mrs. Turner's mailbox was. The girls scouted the area, making sure to pick up all of the mail strewn about. Mrs. Turner stayed by the car with a scowl on her face as she watched the girls pick up the debris. Jana, Gail, and Charlotte made their way back to the car. You know that it's a federal penalty to destroy mailbox, Miss Turner announced. I didn't know that, Jana said. We'll make sure to put it back up. I'm going to call your daddy later, so you make sure he knows what happened, Miss Turner warned. Yes, ma'am, the girls said in unison. Gail, Gina said, why don't you take Miss Ott her mail and let her know what happened? I will take the mail to the Hales. Gail turned and walked towards Mrs. Ott's house to relay the news. Charlotte, Gina continued, do you want to walk with me down to the Hales? Sure, Charlotte said. Although the Hales' property was right next to Miss Turner's, their house was set way off the road. A long dirt driveway led to the ranch-style brick house. Gina and Charlotte began walking down the driveway. What do you think Daddy's going to say? Charlotte asked. He's going to be mad for sure, Gina said, but I learned very quickly to always tell Daddy the truth. As Gina and Charlotte approached the Hales' house, Keith appeared at the open front door. Keith was a good-looking kid. He had blonde hair and, before the cancer, had an athletic build. Hey, Charlotte, Keith said as the girls stood on the front porch. Keith's blonde hair had turned to an ashen gray, and his athleticism had given way to a stooped frame as a result of the cancer treatments. Hey, Keith, Charlotte returned. What are y'all here for? Keith said. Is your mama home? Gina asked. I need to speak with her. She's inside, Keith announced. I'll go get her. Keith left and returned with Mrs. Hale. Gina explained the situation to her and told her that they would get everything repaired. Can I get your phone number? Miss Hale asked. I want to call your parents. Keith, can you go get me a piece of paper? It's six eight nine three two five two, Gina relayed. Okay, Mrs. Hale said as she retrieved a piece of paper and pen from Keith as he returned from somewhere inside the house. Mrs. Hale wrote down our telephone number and thanked the girls for letting her know what happened. See y'all later, Keith said as Charlotte and Gina turned to walk back towards the car. See you later. The girls returned. As Gina and Charlotte approached the car, Gail met them coming from Miss Ott's house. I think that we should go back home, Gail said. Mrs. Ott had me give her our telephone number so that she can call Mom and Daddy. So did the Hales, Gina commented. We need to let Daddy know before they tell him. 
The three girls put all three mailboxes along with what remained of the 4 by 4 post in the back seat. Then they all piled into the front seat and headed back to the house. Gina pulled into the driveway and put the car into park. Let me do the talking, Gina said. If Daddy asks you a question, just tell the truth. The girls entered the house through the utility room and were immediately met by Mom and Daddy. I just got a call from Miss Turner, Daddy said. She says that you ran over her mailbox. Yes, sir, Gina said as she turned to relay the story. Later that day, Daddy took Gina down to Brother Boucher's hardware store and bought three brand new mailboxes, a 4x4 post, a 2x4, and a bag of concrete. Before anyone knew it, all was back to normal, and the three families had the best-looking mailboxes on FM 2090 East. Mom and Daddy kept that Galaxy 500 for a couple more years, but they never repaired the bumper which made the car very easy to spot. In 1979, Gail was adjusting the radio as she was coming out of the school parking lot and hit a parking barrier that was really a telephone pole that had been sawn into three pieces and along with several others had been erected to form a barricade preventing people from coming onto the Splendor ISD property on the weekends and in the summer. Believe it or not, that car still ran well. But Daddy had enough, so he sold it to Mama's brother, Uncle Freddy. He then went and bought Mama a 1977 yellow Ford LTD as a replacement. This concludes The Mailbox by Wallace Gibbs. Thank you for joining me for this adventure that is embedded in the lore of the Gibbs family.